Welcome to another home-cooked episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. With me, as always, is senior reporter Greg Giroux. We're recording this on Friday, June 5th. Iowa Republican Steve King lost his primary a few days ago, becoming the second House incumbent to lose in a primary this year. This coming Tuesday is another notable primary day in the fight for Congress. Joining the pod today is someone helping Democrats a little further down the ticket, Jessica Post, the president of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, the organization dedicated to helping Democrats get elected to state houses. We'll talk about why that's so important for the party this year. After that, we'll break down a new ad that hit the airwaves last week. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Jero's Gem. Jero's Gem, my number of the week, is 7,383. That is the total number of state legislative seats in the nation, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. About 80% of those seats, or 5,876 of them in 44 states, to be exact, are up for regularly scheduled elections in November. There are a bunch of state legislatures where either the Democrats or the Republicans have slender majorities, and these down-ballot November elections for those chambers have implications for policy but also for the redrawing of congressional and state legislative district lines starting next year after the decennial census data are released. We'll have more on this subject coming up on Down Ballot Counts. After the break, we're going down ballot. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is Jessica Post, president of the DLCC, the party arm tasked with electing Democrats to state houses and an organization that's seen a spike in both fundraising and wins over the past few years. Jessica, thanks for coming on Down Ballot Counts. It's great to be here. Great to talk with you and you again, Kyle, and you too, Greg. I want to give our listeners some insights on where the big state legislative battlegrounds are this year, what it means in the states and how it ultimately affects Congress. Uh, But I wanted to provide some background first. You took charge of the DLCC in 2016. Previously, you were political advisor at EMILY's List, recruiting Democratic women to run for higher office. Um, And before that, you had your first go-round at the DLCC as national field director and political director. And I want to go back there because I feel like that's the start of the story of where we are today. Talk about election night 2010. Where were you and what was your reaction when Republicans picked up hundreds of state legislative seats and control of redistricting in states across the country? Uh, it, Kyle, it was a bad one, uh, but it's it's worth noting. So I was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, obviously one of America's most beautiful cities, and it was a rainy and overcast night. And I had I was working in in the Democratic Party of Pennsylvania headquarters at the Pennsylvania House Democratic Campaign Committee offices. It, it I was there to help protect the Pennsylvania State House, which is Democratic controlled, from losing in advance of redistricting. And ultimately, we lost the House that night. The results came in, and in the state that had just voted for President Obama the year before, we kept seeing races at our level of the ballot lost. So Harrisburg still had indoor smoking in a bar at the time. So I went into uh, a smoky bar 
to watch the final results come in. I get a call from our headquarters and it's a, from actually one of my, my current coworkers, our executive director, Heather Williams. And she told me we had lost the Minnesota House and Senate, that there were losses all over the country. And I was completely covered in smoke. I curled up in a ball on the cold Harrisburg sidewalk. I cried a few tears and um, the rain like came down my face very dramatically. And I made a promise to myself at that moment that if I had anything to say in 2020, that I would fight like hell to win back state legislatures and avenge these losses across the country and win back state legislative chambers. So I went back into the bar. I'm from St. Louis. I popped open a Budweiser while Carl Rove, I'm sure, was popping open a giant bottle of champagne somewhere with with uh, the Koch brothers celebrating their victories across the country and, and made a decision that if I had anything to do. So I stayed at DLC through, through 2012. We won back some state legislative chambers. Then I went to Emily's List and uh, worked on the federal side, then worked on the state side. And the folks at the DLCC called and they said like, hey, will you come back and interview to be the, at the time, executive director? And of course I was like, no. And then <laughs> as time went on, I decided that I, um, would go back and interview and it was it was truly a rebuild we um built the budget from 16 million that cycle and we'll spend about 50 million this cycle and the the goal is to be comparable with the republican state leadership committee which has as you know a much broader mandate they do um state they do state supreme court races secretaries of state races they spent 45 million on everything in the 27 2018 cycle and we outraise them now in Q1 of 2020. So we've, and with a much narrower mandate. So we feel good. And that was before they lit a million dollars on fire in Wisconsin on that state Supreme Court election. Just let it burn. They really played themselves with that election day. So you love to see it. You really do. <laughs> but they obviously didn't love to see the folks having to vote during COVID-19. But it, I did love to see the results that night and see that conservative justice lose. Well, you mentioned fundraising, and I think it's fair to say the DLCC and legislative elections in general haven't always been top of mind for, for donors. What did it take to turn that around? Was it, was it Trump? Was it, was it what Obama's been doing since he left the White House? Yeah, I, w- I would say that's still true. Unfortunately, it's, we're still not top of mind to donors, but we've been trying to change that uh, in a number of ways. So I think it was definitely a combination of factors. Like you referenced Kyle first, when Trump won the White House, a lot of Democrats were sitting wondering like, well, why don't we control Congress? If we're supposed to control Congress, we know that the U.S. Senate map is more challenging. So what are the things we can do uh, to hold Trump accountable? And a lot of it pointed to gerrymandering. And then at the time, President Obama came out with the National Democratic Redistricting Committee with Attorney General Holder. I sit on the board of that 527, so I work really closely with them to develop their targets and strategy at the legislative level. Um, And so I think Democrats across the country, Democratic donors started to realize the importance of this. And then at the same time, um, there was just a lot of writing and a lot of education. A number of other groups joined us in this space. Um, We still will be the largest spender on state legislative races this cycle, but a lot of other folks, and we have, we have been every cycle since, um, as far as a single group, as far as since 20, I mean, even uh, 20, 2016 on. So the, 
I, I really think it was a, a combination of groups. Um, and then we did a lot of education, right? Like we, after we flipped Virginia, we, we, um, premiered our famous flip gif on Twitter. So showing the, the red to blue flip, and we've done a lot of work, uh, educating people about the impact of state legislatures, that it, it is redistricting, but it's also criminal justice reform, voting rights, reproductive choice. And, you know, we're in this era of pro- progressive federalism where the states in states like California, New York, a lot of these legislative chambers that we flipped red to blue, um, 10 since Trump was elected, uh, more than 450 legislative seats now, those Democratic-run trifecta states are punching back hard at the Trump administration. So we're really seeing this um, this separation between the states, and um, they're protecting Roe in the Constitution, in their state constitutions, which we know may not be protected federally by this Supreme Court. And I think as uh, progressives, we're seeing so much impact come out of the states at this time. And I think that's something that folks across the country are starting to really understand. And we've tried to do a lot of education on that. What are some state legislatures Republicans control by narrow margins that are among uh, your top targets? That's a great question, Greg. Um, I think people might be surprised. You know, we're only 48 seats away Um, from flipping 11 state legislative chambers. So we're very close to flipping a number of state legislatures. So let's, I'm happy to go sort of west to east in terms of Republican control. Um, The Arizona State Senate, Republicans hold by only three seats. And um, we feel very good about Cinema won all of those seats, narrowly in one case. Um, They only hold the Arizona State House by two seats. The legislative districts are the same, House and Senate. So Cinema won all those seats. In Minnesota, uh, we only need two seats to flip the state Senate. We haven't had a crack at that since Trump. That's probably the next Democratic trifecta of state government is Minnesota, which is you know so needed, especially now. Um, in Iowa, we're only four seats away from flipping the state legislature. Uh, the congressional candidates in Iowa 1, 2, and Iowa 3 won all the seats we need to win. So it's, it's certainly winnable. And uh, with the overlap on the congressional map and with the strength of Teresa Greenfield at the top of the ticket in Iowa, we feel really good in that state. Um, Michigan, we're four seats away from flipping the Michigan State House. The Michigan State Senate is not up this year, but Gretchen Whitmer won every seat on that path. And I think she's going to be an incredibly powerful surrogate with her approval soaring. We're nine seats away in Texas, um, and that's a large state legislative chamber. Beto won all of the seats on the path. There's been a Texas at the state legislative level as well of, of Republican retirements. We call that phenomenon in Iowa, Biowa. We're trying to make Biowa happen up in Iowa as well. So the Texas happened down, <laughs> down south. And then, um, it, so we feel good about that. And there's, I think, record interest in, in winning Texas. And then going uh, back north, um, Pennsylvania, we're only nine seats away from flipping Pennsylvania and um, four seats away from essentially tying the Pennsylvania Senate, which will give us the majority with John Fetterman, the LG, breaking the tie. In North Carolina, we're five seats away from flipping the state Senate. Those maps got a little bit better in the um, in the North Carolina, in that Wake County judge re-ruling on redistricting. The, we're six seats away in the state house. So those are the places um, where we're the closest. We're closer in um, states like West Virginia. I think we only need three seats in West Virginia and in Wisconsin. Um, those are a little bit tougher in terms of the maps. And then there's some big margins in states like Florida, where we need 14 seats to flip the House and 16 seats to flip the Senate, or I'm sorry, 16 seats to flip the state House going north to Georgia. 
a little more challenging, but certainly possible to pick up seats in all of those places um, with the electoral map. We also feel really good about Biden at the top of the ticket in some of these places, um, regaining places like some of these towns in uh, PA with the son of Scranton on the ticket, getting some of those Northeast PA towns back in play. And then also some of those Iowa River counties, you know, think of the old Mississippi River strategy, towns like Dubuque, Muscatine in Iowa, some of the Cedar Rapids suburbs getting back into play. Um, So I think those are places that we stand to gain some ground with Biden on the ticket. And how about state legislatures, Democrats control by slender margins and that Republicans are targeting? What are your toughest holds? Yeah, we feel very good. We feel like we're completely on the offense, but I can tell you what we'll watch closely. Uh, We'll watch the Colorado State Senate closely. Um, We narrowly hold the Nevada Senate. They had an unsuccessful attempt to recall three of our members of the Democratic caucus. You might remember in 2017 that they failed. Um, and we're proud of defeating that recall effort. I think that was really their attempt to take back the Nevada Senate. Um, they sent they spent, sent a lot of money on fire there too. And then uh, we'll also watch Maine very closely and New Hampshire to just make sure we can hold those chambers. And the Minnesota House also. Um, we've run up the score in a lot of those chambers. Probably most concerned about the Maine Senate, narrower margin, um, New Hampshire State Senate. And can you speak to the implications of these down-ballot state legislative races for redistricting next decade? Yeah, absolutely. I think I have a good stat that I can share. State legislatures draw the maps in 35 states. Um, We are closer than ever to having Democratic control of these state legislatures across the country in advance of redistricting. You know, it's a 20-year election for us. It's the first time in Um, it's the first time in 20 years since 2000 when redistricting, as you know, was more about incumbent protection that we've had in this sort of partisan time, an attempt to take back these state legislatures. You know, the Republicans uh, with Project Red Map, they, they did a good job for Republicans across the country and they really, um, did a lot of work knocking out, um, state, state house leaders in advance of redistricting and, and we paid the, the price for a decade. So now we have a presidential year turnout election, normally better for Democrats, and um, the year before redistricting. The next time this will happen is 2040. My hope is that I'll be retired by then. I've talked a lot about wanting to run a spin yoga studio um, with a Jenny's ice cream parlor attached called Spinyasa Cone by then. <laughs> so that's just to like give you an impact of the... <laughs> of like what it might, like I'll be 60 years old by then. So it's, we really have a 20 year opportunity on the ballot um, here in 2020. All right, I wanna end on this question, which isn't necessarily unique to this cycle, but I think it's greatly enhanced by the coronavirus limiting traditional campaign opportunities. How do state legislative candidates get their name and message out there and raise money in a presidential election cycle in a pandemic? That's such a good question. Look, normally state legislative candidates, a lot of the work we do is door knocking. They knock on doors like, and they, they tell their stories and, and focus on local issues across the threshold of uh, voters' homes. And I think now we need to do a lot more with organizing in neighborhoods. So we're going back to some of the old school tactics like phoning people because the phone contact rates are quite a bit higher. 
Um, we're writing postcards, using um, writing letters, like handwritten letters. There's a lot of that sort of stuff happening, old school techniques. And then sort of newer techniques, um, peer-to-peer texting, doing Zoom fundraisers, um, putting all of your supporters from around the country on a Zoom fundraiser. I'm running a virtual 5K on Sunday for a state Senate candidate in North Carolina, Sarah Crawford. And she used to have this as an in-person fundraiser. Now she's doing it virtually. So you can follow her on Facebook Live at 7 a.m. when she runs the 5K. I don't know that I'll be up at that time running the 5K with her, but I, I, w- I did commit that I would run a 5K on Sunday. And I'm hoping that she won't spend campaign resources sending me a medal. She should use that in paid communication. So I think we're just seeing like a, we're seeing a big change in, in tactics. And then we're also seeing sort of the old school tactic with a new name, um, neighborhood organizing, people organizing in their networks of relationships, reaching out and getting people to participate. What we know is that people have sort of more time on their hands than ever because they're at home. So we've also seen increases in TV viewership, um, digital engagement. And so that's a more expensive tactic that we'll have to fundraise for. But it also means that people have had a higher attention share. Um, we raised more money than uh, ever in 2020 in April. We had our biggest fundraising month um, in 2020 and our second largest fundraising month online uh, since October of 2018. So we feel like the resources are there to compete. And it's really coronavirus um, and adding in these protests, it's really drawn a line in the sand in America about what we need for leadership and so our democratic activists and donors around the country and, and even independents. I mean, my dad wrote a check to Joe Biden the other day um, because he sees the stakes being, he didn't vote in 20, my dad didn't vote in 2016. So he's, the stakes are even higher than ever. And I think Americans are in a place to come together and certainly our democratic activists are trying to do everything they can because the stakes in this election have been very visible with the deaths from coronavirus and then the reckoning that we've had around police violence as well. All right, well, we'll have to leave it there. You can follow Jessica on Twitter at Jessica Post. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks again for having me. This was really fun. I appreciate it. I hope you all have a good one. Up next, we're heading to Michigan, where a timely ad just hit the airwaves. So cable news needs us to believe that America's divided, that we're at war with one another. Pick a side. But I don't buy it. Neither should you. Everyone agrees that the murder of George Floyd was a cowardly act of evil, which demands justice. And everyone agrees that using Floyd's death as an excuse to loot and burn is criminal. I believe that Americans desperately want to come together. I believe that love is stronger than hate. I'm John James, and I approve this message. I'll be a unifier. Join me. That was an ad from John James, a Republican challenging Democratic Senator Gary Peters in Michigan. The ad is striking for a few reasons. James, who is black, talks direct to camera without any accompanying music you usually hear in a political ad. And the background is all black, which is evocative of the Blackout Tuesday movement on social media. And he also succeeds in not saying anything controversial, and noticeably doesn't criticize or back the president's actions over the past couple of weeks. Greg, what stuck out to you? Yeah, I think you nailed the, uh, the, the head there, uh, Kyle. John James is speaking directly to the camera here for the entire spot, which is meant to convey the seriousness the sincerity of his message of unity and love over hate. Well, James is a military veteran and a businessman who's very well regarded by conservative groups and President Trump, and he's raising a large sum of money and all of that, plus Michigan having been the closest state in the 2016 presidential election, really put the Senate race on the map. I am looking for more candidates to release TV ads that address the issues of 
police brutality, racism, and white supremacy. You know, some are going to address this crisis in TV ads differently depending on the demographics and political leanings of the district or the state or even the candidate. At about the same time this John James ad first aired, a few hundred miles away in North Georgia, Republican candidate Marjorie Green aired an ad in which she's on her porch with her husband holding a large firearm as she denounces the Antifa movement and links it to George Soros and Joe Biden. I'm Marjorie Green and I approve this ad. Antifa terrorists have declared war on America. Rioting, looting, and burning our cities. George Soros, Hollywood elite, and Joe Biden's staff are funding Antifa. I have a message for Antifa terrorists. Stay out of Northwest Georgia. You won't burn our churches, loot our businesses, or destroy our homes. It's time to take our country back. Save America, stop socialism. A much different ad from James's ad, but then again, Green is seeking an overwhelmingly conservative House district in a Republican primary, while James is trying to unseat a Democratic incumbent in a very politically competitive state in the general election. So Kyle, look for more of these ads, but the issues of emphasis and the tone and the imagery may vary. That's right. Michigan is one of only two races we're watching closely this year that features a Democratic Senate incumbent. Most of the competitive map is Republican-held Senate seats. This is Down Ballot Counts. Now, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, the listeners, with the political trivia question. But let's first review last week's question and answer. Who was the first woman to serve as governor of a U.S. state? On a Bloomberg government Twitter poll, we even gave you four choices. Ma Ferguson of Texas, Ella Grasso of Connecticut, Lurleen Wallace of Alabama, and Nellie Taylor Ross of Wyoming. Everyone, get ready for Kyle to reveal his answer. Kyle, what say you? Well, I'm so glad you offered me options. I'm going to go with Connecticut. Okay, good guess on Ella Grasso, but I'm afraid it is not the correct answer. The correct answer is Nellie Taylor Ross of Wyoming, who was elected in 1924 and became governor in 1925. She was actually elected the same day as Ma Ferguson of Texas, but was sworn in about a couple of weeks earlier. Ross's state of Wyoming, known as the Equality State, was the first state or territory to grant women the right to vote in 1869. And now for this week's question. We talked about state legislatures on this week's program, so let's make the trivia question about that subject too. And the question is, which U.S. state has the largest legislature in terms of total number of members. Again, which U.S. state has the largest legislature? You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. I'll tell you what, if you don't know the answer, you don't have a 1 in 50 chance. You have a 1 in 4 chance if you follow Bloomberg government on Twitter because we will tweet that question and four possible answers as a Twitter poll. We will reveal the answer and ask a new question on next week's episode of Down Ballot Counts. Well, I don't know if I'm right, but I know what I'm going to say, and I hope my answer ends up among those four. All right, that's it for us today. But before we go, Greg, what are you watching this week? Kyle, it's primary day Tuesday in Georgia, Nevada, North Dakota, South Carolina, and West Virginia. Races to watch include the Democratic primary for the Senate seat Republican David Perdue is defending. The Democratic and Republican primaries for Georgia's 7th District near Atlanta, left open by retiring Republican Rob Woodall. 
and the Republican primary in South Carolina's 1st District, a Republican-leaning coastal district where Democrat Joe Cunningham won in an upset in 2018. Also on Saturday, June the 13th, Republicans in Virginia's 5th District will hold an unusual nominating convention, not a primary, that will determine the fate of first-term Congressman Denver Riggleman, who faces a threat to his renomination from a more socially conservative challenger, Bob Good. Keep an eye on that one too, Kyle. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg Government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. The producer for Down Ballot Counts is David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.bgov.com. We will talk to you next week. Taxes and accounting are complicated, but finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu, And I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.